How do I know what I think until I see what I say? The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of Austin Kleon. Austin is a New York Times bestselling author of five books, and in this episode, we're talking about everything from creativity to being present in the moment, whether that's in our day jobs or hanging with our families. I spend a lot of energy researching my guests and then attempt to script out the episodes so that not only do I maximize their time, but I'm also able to make the episode worth your time. And sometimes that plan goes completely off the rails. And that happened in this interview. And as Austin reminds me, and you're going to hear the back and forth when this moment happens, conversations can be a great form of creativity if we're mentally present and open to the back and forth with the person we're talking to. So you're going to learn a lot about how to get more creative, why routines matter, why we should hang on to those old notebooks, why focusing on seniors is better than focusing on genius, and so many other great life lessons during the course of this conversation. I've listened to this episode three times since I recorded it because there's so much goodness packed into this episode, not because of the stuff I talk about, but of Austin's just amazing insights. So grab your notebooks and please welcome to the show, Austin Cleon. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Well, Austin, thanks for making time, man. I know you're busy, you're a writer, you're a parent, you're a husband, so a lot of stuff going on right now for you. Well, it's my pleasure. You know, we were kind of talking before we hit the record button. As I was preparing to interview Billy Oppenheimer for our episode, which aired last month, I started researching him. He mentioned your name several times across several podcasts. And then I, I was like, hmm, I've heard of Austin. I, I haven't read any of his stuff yet. So then I went down like an Austin Cleon rabbit hole of all the podcasts you've been on, binge read your books over the course of three days, and then subscribed to your newsletter and became a huge fan. And so I'm just super excited to talk to you. I really appreciate that. I, uh, I, I love talking, so. <laughs> yeah. Well, like um, in the military, we are faced with challenges all the time, faced with multiple problems. So creativity is something that we actually need to be good at, but a lot of people don't view themselves as creative. And so, you know, as I was reading your book, Still Like an Artist, it was basically like the framework. It was like a, an idiot's guide to becoming more creative. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I always liked those idiot's guides when I was a kid. I had like the idiot's guide to philosophy. And, uh, you know, for me, it's like, I think one of the big misconceptions about being creative is that you have to be original, you know, to be creative. And I think that's something that you really don't have to worry about. I would imagine, you know, in the military, 
you know, you have this rich history to draw. I mean, military history, what's older than military history, you know? So you have this kind of rich history to draw from. And I think that was one of the great leaps for me as a young creative person was realizing that the more you try to be original, kind of the worse your stuff gets. The way to being original is not to think about like, well, what is my own, you know, to really ruminate so much as much as it is to reach out and devour a lot of different influences and to read deeply and know the history of your field and know what's come before you so that you can then update all those things to your own context. I love that. And I think like, again, you, you said like we have a rich history. It's like 5,000 plus years <laughs> For old. Sure. Yeah. Ever since people like, were like, Hey, that's my cave and started throwing rocks at each other. Um, <laughs> like we, we have this, we have this history of warfare that people can draw on, but I think, you know, again, warfare is a very human endeavor and like, art is a very human endeavor. And so there's this idea of drawing on inspiration and, and resources like you were talking about, even outside your field as well. Well, absolutely. There's a um, one of my favorite musicians, uh, Brian Eno, says that a lot of what he thinks about when he does his work is what he calls import-export. And what that is, is going to other fields, places outside of music. So if you're in the military, looking to business, looking to art, looking for, you know, wherever, medicine, and importing some of those ideas into your own work, you know, into your own field. And I think you see that in a lot of careers, people feel very much that they need to only be interested or listen to people who are specialized, you know, in their own particular field. And I think when you study some of the most creative people, they don't necessarily like silo their attention to just their own field. They're really kind of bringing in things from all over the place and they have interests that are very diverse and and they're into all sorts of different things. And it's in the combination of your interests that your work is kind of formed, you know? And I think that is another thing to think about when you're attempting to do creative work or trying to be like a creative individual, you know, it's really by kind of accessing the whole of who you are, everything that you're interested in and bringing it to bear on, you know, every situation you're in is that that's like when the real you know, creative stuff comes from. But I love that idea of like import export that you would you would export certain things and import them into your own work and and so forth. And it's I think I wear the same uniform. I've been wearing the same clothes to work now. You know, it's changed over the years as the army's adopted new uniforms, but I'm wearing the same clothes to work now for like 19 years. Right. Um, <laughs> I've I've kept the same schedule. Um yeah. and so I, I think like you know especially when it comes to the, the people in my field, we think, okay, if, if I want to be creative, I've got to be eccentric. I've got to, <laughs> I've got to do all this crazy stuff. But like, right. I, I, I realized at least for me, because not only do I do this military thing, but I do this podcasting thing and I've been writing for like over a decade now is that uh, I'm the most creative when I'm at my most boring um, yeah. <laughs> when I'm like sitting down, like reading books, when I'm journaling, when I'm like writing, you know, when I'm bringing all those, those different silos together to 
you know, combine to create new ideas. Yeah, I think that's a real common misconception of, you know, quote unquote, creative people is that, you know, you somehow have to live this eccentric, interesting life in order to make interesting work. And really, most of the most like truly productive creative people are almost, you know, their discipline is such that they almost do have a kind of military-esque, you know, uh, schedule. Most of the great writers I know, you know, they get up real early in the morning and work before, you know, they do their work before the world interrupts. And they're very like, you're very rigid with your routine and your schedule. So you can be kind of wild and violent and free in your work is kind of how that works. And so if you know, like if you have your life set up in this very structured way, that means you can kind of show up every day and then let the wildness happen, you know, let yourself kind of go. And and so it's that tension between order and chaos that really, you know, makes for the productivity side of things. You know, you have to show up every day and you don't just show up to the studio when you're inspired, you know, you show up to the studio and then you get inspired. And I think that's the other thing that people like kind of misunderstand about creative work is it's, you know, ideas are one thing and they're fine. It's fine to have ideas, but it's really the tension between your ideas and the material, the working with the material. You know, I know you know this as a writer. Is it's like you can have the whole thing in your head, but when you sit down, you actually try to put it into words. That tension of, you know, having to explain in light, like what word goes in which way. It's like going into battle or something. You know, you have your plan. How everyone has a plan, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it's that the real creative work is the struggle, the struggle with your own limitations, with the material at hand, with the situation. So it's really like constraints are actually what bring about the creative work. People think that if they were totally free, they would do more better creative work but it's really like with just the right amount of constraints the like right amount of pressure the right amount of tension that like really good work is done i love that and a couple of things spring to mind so i'm about to go down the i'm just about to like word vomit um with you please but uh, <laughs> i interviewed james patterson right after he wrote his memoir uh-huh and uh, when he worked at an ad agency like he's at the top of his game at this ad agency you know, he was the guy behind the Burger King, like McDonald's Burger Wars. He turned Allegheny Airlines, which was like had this nickname as like Agony Airlines into American Airlines. I mean, like top of the game. But every day at lunch, he would shut his door and work on his novel. Right. And that was his like exit strategy. But it was that mm -hmm. working in the confines of that hour a day yeah, over multiple days, you know, created his first couple books. And, you know, for me... I work, you know, 60, 70 hours a week right now, but I wake up at 4.30 every morning and I can get 30, 45, maybe 45 minutes in of either reading, writing or reflection in my journal. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, I have a monthly reading list email mm -hmm. and a weekly Sunday email. And those two things together force me to produce content. Right. I, I don't know that I'd be able to do the output that I have if I didn't have those constraints on my schedule or that commitment to this, uh, a weekly email or a monthly email. 
That's a really good thing that you just said. It's like constraints and commitment. You have the constraints on when you can actually get things done, but then you have these commitments that you've made that need to be delivered. And that's like a really beautiful setup for an artist and a creative person is to have a deadline. You have these kind of like self-imposed deadlines, like, well, I have to put out a newsletter every week, or I have to... You know, or I want one piece of, I want one good thought to put on Twitter, you know, whatever it is, you know, and and then you commit to that. And I find that there's something about that. I put out an email twice a week. I have a Friday email that's like kind of free and it's for everybody. And it's kind of like a list of stuff I've been into that week. It's kind of free form. But then every Tuesday, I put out uh, more of what you call like a deep dive newsletter. It's like usually like a thousand words on on whatever. And it's interesting. I have Monday blocked. And it's usually only a couple of hours on Monday. And I rarely plan it. You know, it's just I know that when I show up on Monday, like you got to have something ready for Tuesday. And there's something about that tension and that like rising to the occasion that it always gets done, you know, I wouldn't say it's always amazing, <laughs> you know, but, yeah, but like yeah. that, you know, for me, I've always told people, they're like, well, what's your motivation in life? And I'm like, death and deadlines. Yeah. You know, it's like, I'm going to be dead someday. I'd like to do something with the day. And then the deadline is, and I have to deliver something, you know, there's something that I have to like, you know, give forth. So um, yeah, death and deadlines. That's like kind of what I run on. <laughs> I love that. And I, I heard this a couple of years ago. I read it. I think it was in like in a Robert Green book, but then I read Edison's biography after that. And um, he used to announce to the media of this new invention that he was going to, to work on or going to complete, but he hadn't gotten to that stage yet. And so by announcing it, by putting it out in the world, he had to finish it. <laughs> and so, yeah. you know, like in December of 2022, I was like, okay, I'm going to spend all of 2023 writing about the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I kind of have like an outline for it. It's the, you know, Joseph Campbell's, you know, 12 steps, whatever, whatever steps you, you follow from him, but that was it. And so I didn't know, you know, at the time I had like zero words written and I was like, I, I don't know how I'm going to finish this, but I put this out in the world. And I have these weekly deadlines to put out this newsletter. You know, now I'm, it's October. I think I'm working on like week 42. I have like 28,000 words under my belt. But yeah, like if I didn't have the deadline staring in my face and that pressure, along with the confines of my daily routine, I don't know that I, I ever would have done this if I had all the time in the world and no pressure, you know, on top of me. Yeah, I I mean, like, one of my favorite, you know, I never expected to be a full-time writer. I figured I'd have a day job and just, you know, I I never thought that anything I was interested in was mainstream enough to make a living from it, first of all. I thought it was too weird or, (laughs) uh, you know, whatever. And so it was a big surprise to me when that ended up happening, like I didn't plan on being a full-time writer. It just kind of like happened. Like Steal Like an Artist kind of took off. And then I wrote another book and then it was like, oh, I can do this for a while. You know, I've always been good at saving and my wife and I, we live pretty modestly. And like, it was like, oh, we might be able to eke out a living for a while. So like, yeah, success kind of took me by surprise. 
And one of the big surprises that you hear people say a lot is that it doesn't get any easier, actually. <laughs> like, like writing doesn't get any easier just because you do it full time or you're successful. In some ways, it's worse because now people are paying attention. And there's a band called The White Stripes. I'm sure you know yeah, them. Yeah. And, and one of my favorite songs, I think it's the best. I think it's the best thing ever written about creative work and success. It's Little Room, which is when you're in your little room, you're working on something good. But if it's really good, you're going to need a bigger room. And when you're in your bigger room, you might not know what to do. You might have to sit and think of how you got started sitting in your little room. <laughs> so it's it's a song about constraint. I, I like that song too, because Jack White is, is an artist who has put artificial constraints on his work. Like, you know, the White Stripes were genius because it's a voice, a guitar and drums. It's simple songs. It's red, white, and black was their aesthetic. Like it was very, very pared down. And out of those constraints, Jack White was able and Meg White were able to like make this kind of great revival rock and roll music, you know. But that song, I think, is so meta and it's so real because that's the album they did. It's them grappling with success, you know. So I think of that little room thing all the time is that this happens to us is that we're under such pressure. We're under these little constraints and we work in this way. It's kind of quick and dirty way that we have to work out of necessity. And then if we get a little bit of success, it's like, well, now you can spread out. And it's like, do you want to? Cause you know, all of a sudden it's like, uh, well, gosh, maybe I did better when I had, a, you know, when I had to like squirrel away time, you know, I still, even now it's like, I've got two or three, good hours in me, you know, writing wise. And even the best writers, there are some mutants who can go all day, but like even someone like Stephen King, you know, he like writes three hours a day in the morning and then he reads all afternoon, you know, because yeah. he shows, because he does that every day, you know? And so, um, yeah, it's really interesting how I just think constraints really are the kind of magic secret of, getting work done you just yeah. have to have some sort and you can't have too many like right you know if you're a single mom on a low income and like you know there's there's a certain amount of friction that's good and friction that destroys you there's a good like balance there where you're being destroyed by the friction versus the friction is is helping you go yeah my favorite musician my favorite artist is eminem okay I will sit there and just study his lyrics. Okay. Yeah. I'm just so impressed how he does it. But I watched an interview one time with Akon and they did a song together and he shows up at like 6 PM at the studio and he calls Marshall. He's like, where are you at, man? I'm at the studio at six. He's like, I'll see you tomorrow morning at nine. And so like Marshall shows, like, he gets there next morning at nine, uh, Eminem's there and uh, they get to 12 and he just stops working. He's like, all right, I got to go to lunch. And Akon's like, Okay. And uh, so Eminem comes back an hour later, they start recording five o'clock. It's like in the middle of uh, Eminem's track. And it's like, you know, 459 and all of a sudden Eminem stops. And he's like, all right, it's five o'clock. I'll, I'll see you tomorrow morning at nine. And Akon's like, what man? Like you were right in the middle of that flow. Like, why are you stopping? And he's like, yeah, this is what I do every single day. He's turned his bankers hours. Yeah. Yeah. Creative yeah. career into a, a routine Yep. That he's able to keep that. And so I just, again, like I, I remember when I first started writing, I thought it was like this 
thing like you just create when it strikes you or whatever yeah and then to your point on success austin have you read the uh brian j jones biographies at all i don't think so no yeah so he he wrote a biography on george lucas okay it's absolutely amazing you know you see george lucas like struggling to write the first script for star wars yeah um you know to get, get through all three he has success and then when he writes the prequels you know now he's successful and everything and now he's having to explain himself to diehard fans like he doesn't even own his universe anymore yeah. and he talked about how hard success was and it was almost easier when everybody else said you couldn't do it this isn't going to work yeah that's interesting. I need to read that biography because I've always read him as someone who needed people to say no to him. But I guess that's what he's saying is that, I mean, like one of the things if you study Star Wars is his first wife, Marsha Lucas, was actually the editor on Star Wars. And she really did a lot of that structuring. And she was really good at being able, like in Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Indiana Jones movie, She's the one that was like, well, we need to see them after the thing happens. Like what happens to the girl? You know, just like little things yeah. like that. She was like a great little bit of friction for him to work against. And once I read George Lucas's output is like once you kind of take away the limitations of filmmaking, you know, whether it's working with actors or or working with set designers or whatever, you know, like the prequels, he was super into this prequels because, oh, well, we can do stuff with computers now. I don't need to like, you know, and it's like, no, dude, you need these. It's a great, I think it's a great example of when you take away constraints, you know, how the stuff just doesn't, it's not as good. Yeah. And to your, to your point, Brian talks about it in the biography is that like, you know, yeah, Marshall was the only person who pushed back against George. I got to read this. This is great. I'm going to write this down. Brian Jones. This is another output of, you know, talking to Billy Oppenheimer. So, yeah. And I'm actually, I'm interviewing Brian next month. Oh, cool. Brian wrote a biography on George Lucas, Jim Henson, and Ted Geisel, Dr. Seuss. Oh, yeah. Dr. Seuss. Yeah. yeah. Oh, great. It, I don't know his work. I need to read those. You would love it, man. I to I, your interview with him. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Yeah, But there's this idea that, you know, I've, I've been thinking a lot about lately, which George faced, which I guess all of them face, is this idea of negative capability, mm -hmm. which was a... The Keats thing. Yeah, Keats, right. Mm -hmm. And so, like, I know Keats wrote a letter to his brother talking about it, and I've kind of maybe morphed it a little bit, but it's this idea of creating in the face of uncertainty. Yes. And so, you know, when George created Star Wars, everybody was telling him this is not going to work. Right. This formula doesn't make sense. And even Marsha was like, why are you doing this movie? You have the script to Apocalypse Now. Don't give it to Coppola. <laughs> yeah. Like, you do it. Right. And yeah. he like was like, no, I, I've got to do this thing. And, you know, like Jim Henson, like, the, you know, the puppet thing didn't look like it it was going to work. And a lot of people question them. And then yeah. even Geisel, like, how are you going to make a book out of 250 words? Yeah. I've gotten like obsessed with this idea. And again, this goes back to Billy Oppenheimer because Billy was the one that introduced this idea. And then I saw a post by Steve Pressfield on negative capability a week later. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I, I have to write about it. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's a big thing in creativity. And you've written about it too. Validation is for parking, not, yeah. not, uh, not creative work.
Yeah, I mean, the negative capability thing is, to me, I read it as it's just a willingness to deal with the unknown, to really step out into the void, you know. It's also about, like what I talked about before, about being able to hold things in tension with each other and not spin out. It's about, you know, having a vision, but having a budget and being (laughs) able to, like, hold that. I always think of tension... Tension is something I'm really like obsessed with because I think that tension is something that in our culture, maybe not the military, but if you think about in civilian culture, tension is seen as like, oh, it's this bad thing, man. Like you don't want to be tense, you know, like we want to reduce all tension in our life. But for creative work and work of all kinds, a, a proper tension is really important I think of it in terms of being a guitar player. If you think of a guitar string, a guitar string without tension buzzes and it doesn't make any note at all. It's just, you know, it just doesn't make any noise. There's no music. If a guitar string is too tense, it snaps. And so it is with us. It's like we have to find the proper tension in our work that kind of keeps us singing so it's like too slack and there's no music, too tight and we snap. And so the, I think there is like, and you'll see this in certain projects, the right tension was there, right? Because the tension holds energy that we can like, like release, you know, the same way with like when you pull back a bow, you know, you're creating tension that is then released. And even if you think of like a tightrope, you know, a tightrope needs to have the right tension for us to like balance on it. You know, like it's interesting when you watch a tightrope walker. I would think that you'd want to walk on something like real, real tight, you know, but like a lot of those tightropes, they have like a little bit of give to them. Right. So it's, I I just, I'm obsessed, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use, there is a sense in which tension can be a really good thing. Tension can give us the energy that we need to get through to the thing that we're trying to get to. And of course, I would think that would have that would be exported into many (laughs) situations and careers. It would. And it makes me think about something else too. Again, like just doing my research for this episode, like you have a wife, you have kids Mm -hmm. in the military. A lot of times leaders, we love buzzwords. We love buzz phrases. I hate those things, but a lot of people talk about work life balance. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's, it's bullshit. Right. (laughs) But like, there's a tension there that you going back to your talking about the energy within the tension, I think tension forces you to prioritize, right? Like it forces you into some sort of action one way or the other. And so, you know, for the military, it's very easy for us, like our culture to work long hours, to miss key family events, to miss out on this other side of our life. And then again, like people will talk about balance where you have to find balance. And then, you know, people spend 20 years of their career struggling to find this, you know, elusive balance somewhere, but it's a tension that you have to manage. And I think even creative work, again, going back to the Brian J. Jones thing, Jim Henson was all in on the Muppets and like that consumed his life. And, you know, Brian talks about how his relationships, his personal relationships all revolved around that to like, he like went the other way Yeah, with it where he didn't have close friendships. You know, he had multiple girlfriends, exes, stuff like that. Yeah. Because he was too far on one side. 
Well, it's what you want your life to look like. You know, that's the other thing is that some of these guys are so driven that like they just can't not do it. And I am always, I do think that our culture right now, you see it a lot in the arts. We have this real hunger for everyone to be like a well-rounded, perfect person who makes our stuff. And I think it's really doesn't (laughs) exist, first of all. If you look at the history of art, sorry, it's all creeps and weirdos. <laughs> and like, you know, I mean, sure, there's like a box for every, you know. But yeah, I, I think like for me, I'm always just like, I think this is the writer thing is like, I'm always looking for different metaphors, you know. Yeah. One of the things that I'm not, you might have already intuited this, I'm not the most athletic guy. <laughs> Uh, but one of the things I've really enjoyed in the past couple of years is I've really got into my bicycle. I really like bike riding. Bike riding is an excellent, um, you know, the physics of bike riding is one of the really, it's shaped a lot of my life recently. And one of the things that Einstein said, and he did actually say this, this is not like <laughs> one of those, like Abraham Lincoln said this random thing that I saw on the internet. Einstein did say, like, so with a bicycle, so with people, is that you, if you want to stay balanced, you have to keep moving. Like, you have hmm. to keep pedaling, right? Yeah. Like, you have to, it's the forward motion that keeps the balance. And the way I kind of see that play out in my own life is like, you get into these flow zones, you know, where you can transition, you figure out systems for yourself where you can transition in between those roles you have to play, right? There's like me in the studio and then there's dad, right? And and I figure out ways to switch into those roles gracefully with the sense of kind of forward motion, one thing to the other. And it can be really difficult. In fact, sometimes when I take rides, especially really r- long rides, the whiplash of getting off of a really beautiful ride and like feeling free and zipping along and then you walk in the house and somebody needs something, you know, like you, <laughs> that, that is... Like I've built in little transitions for myself now because to be able to like kind of smoothly transition into things to build in, like I think in the studio, it's really helpful for me. And again, this is all about being routine, right? you know, like having constraints and routines so you can be free and you can feel free and you can flow. Like it really helps me in the studio if I quit a little bit early and organize a little bit and say, okay, it's time to go in the house. It's time to be present, you know? Because one of the things I've noticed with my own parenting is it's really when I'm trying to be two places at one time that I snap. It's building your life so you can give yourself wholly to what's in front of you. So like with my kids, it's like if I'm trying to read or even answer an email or anything like that, those are always the moments where I'm going to be the worst version of myself. Whereas if I say... All that will get answered in an hour. <laughs> I just like be there. And I think that that's, again, this is ancient wisdom is to be where you are fully and to give yourself over to whatever situation you're in. That's very ancient wisdom. And, but it's spectacular for being a parent. And I think the work life balance stuff, there is none. Yeah. It's more role playing. It's more, you know, switching hats or, you know, when you take off the uniform kind of thing, because we all have our different uniforms. I was like wearing an apron in the house, like when I'm cooking. <laughs> Not that I cook very much, but I was right. like having something you put on. You know, I think there's something really real about having a uniform or having something physical that you change out of 
you know, I've always really liked that idea of a uniform, I think is actually really powerful because it's like when I'm in the uniform, that's when I'm doing the thing, you know? It's really interesting that you said that, Austin, because I think like, so this is something that I, I've started doing within the last couple of years. And maybe it was subconscious, but it's exactly what you're talking about. So yeah. I leave my house every day in like regular clothes, like the clothes I'm wearing right now. And then when I get to work, I put the military uniform on. But before I leave, I take it off. Yeah. And then I yeah. put my regular clothes back on and then I come home. I think that's really powerful. I think that's like a really good thing to do. Now that you're mentioning this, this is bringing some stuff up for me. Yeah. I used to not do that. And like I was walking into home with not only my like literal work on me, but my, you know, figurative work on me as well. Yeah. And I I haven't done that. I've maybe done that a handful of times in years. And yeah, I think there's something to that. I definitely think there's something to that. This is something, the more that our culture becomes digital and kind of like less tangible, we have all this evolution of using our bodies and being in our environments that gets lost when everything becomes very intangible, let's put it that way. And so I think the kind of thing about like suiting up and then derobing and then and changing outfits, I think that's really powerful and real. I mean... Days always go better in the studio for me. I, you know, I work from home. It's like I mean, home's over there. It's <laughs> 20 feet out of here. And, but for me, it's like the days when I get a shower and like put on regular clothes, those are always better days. And there's a long history of writers who dressed up in a suit. Yeah. You know, and when I think maybe it was John Cheever who like put a suit on and went down to the basement of his apartment to work. Yeah. Something like that. But I love the idea of, you know, whether you want to call it a costume or a uniform. Yeah. (laughs) I've always really enjoyed the idea of a uniform because you take one, that's a nice thing to not have to think about. You put the uniform on, you know how it goes, you know how it's supposed to look, and then you go to work, you know? Yeah. So I've always really liked the idea of a uniform. I always think it's interesting that like Steve Jobs had a uniform. Yeah. He wore the same thing every day. And connecting that to routines. By the way, real quick, for people listening, I had a whole list of things. <laughs> I had an interview format and you're just listening to a conversation between two guys geeking out about stuff. But I don't even know what I was going to say, Austin. Um, well, you're, what you just said, actually, I think is really interesting because <laughs> I actually think of conversations as creative yeah. endeavors and that you have your plan. But... There's something about being present and giving yourself completely to the other person, what you're talking about. And it's kind of like, I think music is really good to study for creative people, um, particularly stuff like jazz, which I didn't understand jazz for a really long time. I like the sound of it. But there's really deep things going on with improvisation with musicians. What we're doing right now is an improvisation. You know, we don't have like, 100%. You know, I think conversation can be really, really instructive for people who are trying to do creative work because, in some way, when you sit down and you do your creative work, you want it to have the flow of a decent conversation with somebody, even if that person is yourself <laughs> yeah. or the voices in your head that you're conversing with. You know, you want it to have that flow and you want to give yourself over completely to the task at hand. 
I love that. And it goes to a point, and this wasn't, again, I, I had no idea what I was going to tell you, but um, it goes to the point of what you talk about in the book of, of genius. Yeah, that's a great. Yeah, it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, maybe I'll tell your listeners about Senius. And then I had something I wanted to feed you because I know you're working on hero's journey stuff. Yeah. So, you know, our kind of traditional notion of creative work, creativity, is that it's the Provence of a great, talented individual, a genius. Someone who's kind of superhumanly talented, someone who's trained, someone who's, you know, Beethoven, Picasso, whoever it is. Superhuman special people that kind of go through something and they they go up to the mountain and they pull it down and they bring it back to us and the rest of us just kind of like are in awe of this thing. We receive the work, they they give it to us. There's kind of a different way of thinking about creative work that comes from Brian Eno and he calls it senius. And senius is just a kind of reconfiguration of genius. Senius is a collective form of genius. It's Instead of thinking about these people as these superhuman individuals, you think of them as kind of the result of the situations and networks that they find themselves in. You know, it's all the people that have come before them that they're drawing and stealing from. It's all the people in their environment that they're kind of like interacting with and against. It's it's the wider culture at hand. It's the world at the time. So you take someone like Beethoven, who's probably the closest thing to a musical genius we ever had. You know, Beethoven's born at a very specific time and place in history. He's born to a musical family who knows what to do with him. You know, he goes to Vienna where there are, you know, patrons, musicians for him to play with. And most importantly, there's an audience for what he does. So Senius is just kind of like rethinking the way that the story we tell about creative work. So what I'm getting to here is Senius, if you think of your life less in terms of genius, what you have to do as an individual, and you think more in terms of how can I create or find myself in situations in which I can pull, create a rich Senius or a a kind of environment in which I can thrive and be part of something it really changes the way you, it has profound effects, whether it's your family, whether it's your troop, right. you know, whether it's your organization, your world, your city, whatever. One of the things I find really interesting about the hero's journey and here, I'm going to tie it in with your stuff. The hero's journey kind of is about the lone individual. If you think about it, they come into contact with helpers, Yeah, you know, there's one book I want you to take a look at. I don't know if you'll like it or not, but take a look at it and see if you like it. It's um, The Heroine's Journey. Gail Carriger is okay. her name. And she's a novelist. She writes uh, romance novels. What she talks about is there's a different form of the, the hero's journey that she calls the heroine's journey. And it's what you see more in like romance novels and comedies but I really like it because you can think of like the Fast and Furious movies. They're more about a collective, like a team right. of of people, right? Like, like someone has a problem and then they meet this collective team and they form these friendships and these networks that they attack the problem with. So I love that. And like the Harry Potter movies can be that seen that way. Like Harry Potter is the hero, right. but it's really like Ron and Hermione and Hagrid and like Dumbledore. He has like his little team that he uses to battle. So what I'm trying to get at is just that we have 
the idea that creative work comes about through the individual's efforts, right? Like a big brain, but it's really a brain that's connected to other brains, right? It's an individual that's connected to other individuals and how they're connected to other individuals that really, when you read about some of these creative stories, that's like what really happens, you know, because George Lucas couldn't have made Star Wars on his own. He needed this whole team of people he needed to be in the right place in the right time to like make that stuff it's you know and i've just found personally in my own life like the more i think about seniors and the less i think about my own genius and, and they're dual modes you know like uh, there's a tension there between you as an individual and being part of a collective you feel that in family a lot and everywhere really there's always the tension of feeling like you're unique versus being part of something that's like just kind of life in general but it's been really rich for me. It's really helped me a lot in my own work. Yeah, same here. And I think like, again, tying it back to this interview, I came in with this idea of these are the questions I want to ask Austin today. <laughs> so kind of like, this is my mission. This is my mindset. Yeah. But being open to the back and forth, like we created, I think a lot of good content in the last like 45 plus minutes. And, you know, going back to the hero's journey, there's a part of it that Joseph Campbell identified was that once you go into the special world, you know, in all these, you know, different movies and, and stories, all these allies and helpers, like you were talking about, just pop up out of nowhere. Yeah. And the hero would not be able to face the ordeal without that help. Exactly. You know, I think back to the story of Perseus, I think it was Athena and Hermes like show up when he's trying to figure out how to kill Medusa. First of all, he doesn't even know where Medusa's at. He just knows that like, Hey, I've got to go slay Medusa and bring her head back. Yeah. But they like show up in the tools. And Hermes actually says, We can't do the job for you, but we can tip the scales in your favor. Right. And I think, again, going back to seniors and creative work and just in life in general is being open to that. And for me, in the context of the hero's journey, I believe that like when you're on your path, that these people just pop up out of nowhere. Like we wouldn't be doing this interview right now if I didn't have a conversation with Billy and, you know, get interested in, in your work and right. all that. So I, again, I'm like fascinated and obsessed at the same time about this concept. I think it was Blake Butler called it being an open node, you know, being, being a connector, being a, being like someone who you invite Billy on your podcast and then Billy points you to other stuff, right? He's being a good node. He's like pointing you down other paths and now we're connected and I'm telling you other stuff and you're telling me stuff to read. So it's that two-way street that like being part of a network is that you're taking things in and then you're putting things out. It's that kind of that flow that really, and I think that's another lesson for creative work is like, creativity doesn't like to be one way it doesn't like to be linear it doesn't like to be contained it wants to kind of radiate out it wants to be non-linear you know and so the more you can kind of get in that mindset that back and forth of it all i think the better you do one question i have for you about creativity so i've studied this stuff over the years like robert green Ryan Holiday and now Billy Oppenheimer, they have like a note card system. So, oh, yeah, um, yeah. For those of you that don't know what that is, they read a book, they highlight a book, they take margin notes, and then they transfer that stuff onto note cards, which they didn't like file 
into a system. I write in a notebook. Mm-hmm. I have like a small notebook. I do kind of like the Da Vinci method of like just mm-hmm. everything, list, yeah. ideas, margin notes, highlights, all go in a notebook. And then I can kind of make connections across disciplines. And then I reflect every, like I have that. And then I also have a journal, which I, I write in every day yeah. to kind of reflect on my days. How do you kind of slow down and, you know, you've, you've we talked about notes, talked about seniors, but how do you kind of collate that for yourself? Well, I've really beat myself up over the years because, you know, Ryan's got his note card system and he's churning out books and, you know, it's kind of that, that very like disciplined way of doing that. My books are more the result of these little bits and pieces that I put out publicly. Like I have a public notebook. So like my blog and my newsletter are very much me kind of like processing what I'm reading and that kind of thing and putting it out in this kind of stream of stuff. And then when I'm working on a book, a lot of times I have to go back to that stuff and look at it and see where I've been because I forget. And I think the thing about keeping a notebook that I didn't understand when I was younger that I'm really starting to understand now is you have to go back. You have to constantly reread yourself and go back through your notes. I think somehow this idea got out there that a notebook is for the present moment. It is in a sense to see what you're thinking and to get down what's in your head. But for it to really be a robust tool, there has to be a system in which you go back to it. You revisit things. You kind of like see where you've been. Something that's really changed my life in the past couple of years is I was talking to my friend, Alan Jacobs, who's a great writer. He told me, oh, I have a like a retrospective day. I forget. It's a review day where I just open up my old notebooks and I see what I've been writing and reading and I think about it and I take notes on the notes and I'm like saying, oh, there's something there. And I'm constantly referring back to what I've done. That like kind of blew my mind, this idea that you would take like a day or or a certain amount of time every week and look back. That was a discipline I hadn't kind of integrated into my process. Now, that said, I put out a newsletter every week on Friday, (laughs) which is me looking back at like what I did that week and what was worth sharing. So I'm doing that anyway. But to formalize that with like looking at my diary and my notebook and stuff, that's been really hard. I don't have a great way of keeping track of what I'm reading. I still don't do like that note card system. Um, I just haven't gotten disciplined that way. Usually when something strikes me as worthwhile, I usually like post it on Twitter, <laughs> like right. put it out. And, and then I usually have to look it back up later. So I just haven't really established a very, this is probably why I haven't done that many books is like, I have all the stuff written down somewhere. I don't have a great system for like reshuffling it and coming up with, you know, the work but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're you're doing fine. It's whatever works always, <laughs> you know. It's hard when you do different kinds of work. Like I have my book work and my writing work and then I have my art practice and these things just kind of it's like the bicycle thing, right? You just have to like flow and keep it all in tension and just keep moving. And whatever's, you know, kind of working at the time is what's working. It's funny when I really start work on a book. You know, I've been at this for so long now and I write so constantly about what I'm into. I just assume the book's already written, like with my stuff. 
I just kind of assume that it's already out there and I just have to find it. Right. So a lot of times that's like getting these little nuggets of stuff and then working on some connective tissue between the meat and like putting it up on a skeleton, like building up the book, you know, I rarely start from scratch with my books because there's usually enough material that I've worked up over time that it can kind of build out of that. And I got really inspired by people like Emerson and Thoreau and some of those early writers who they kept journals they were writing in every day and then they worked those journals up into lectures or essays and then eventually turned those into like bigger books. It's a weird comparison, but someone who works that way is like David Sedaris, the writer. Yeah. You know, he writes his diary every day and then he'll read parts of his diary when he's out on the road and see what works. And then he'll work those up into his little short stories. And then eventually those like turn into a book. So it's like a real like piecemeal iterative process. That's kind of how I see my work like happening. So that would be my process is just like, little bits and pieces that like Katamari, you know, like they build up into, you know, bigger, bigger things. I think, you know, you and I are talking from a creative standpoint, but I think also from like a life standpoint too, I like sometimes to go back to like a period where I knew I was struggling Mm -hmm. just like with life. Yeah. I'll like go back and look at my journal and be like, man, like that was, (laughs) I didn't think I was going to make it out of that. Here I am now, you know, like, and so, oh, it, yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. And then it kind of gives me confidence, you know, okay, I can make it through whatever I'm dealing with now. I think it's a personality thing. For me, keeping a diary has clued me into the kind of seasonal times, yes, circular time. You find yourself repeating yourself over and over. I think some people that really depresses them. For me, it's much more what you're talking about. It's like, oh, I've been here before. I just have to keep moving and like, I'll come out of this and it'll be a different season. The cycles are so interesting. Once you start paying attention to your own life, you realize how cyclical everything is. That's why I really like reading Thoreau is that like, you know, Thoreau was really paying attention to the seasons. Yeah. And you can just see him repeating himself over and over because he notices the same things, but he notices them in different ways. I have this really particular way that I read Thoreau's diary. I have an abridged version that's just in like this little, it's just like in a little abridged version. But I keep little tabs on the years, on today's date and different years. And so then I'll like on today's date, I'll say, I wonder, okay, so I'll read what he wrote on October 11th. 1844. And then I'll read what he wrote on in 45 or 46. And I'll just keep going. And one of the cool things about reading it that way is you do get those repetitions. Yeah. You're like, oh, he's writing about squirrels again. Well, he's writing about <laughs> squirrels because the squirrels are out. They're storing out. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, and then it it made me reading his diary that way. I've started doing that with my own diaries. And so I'll say, okay, what did I write on this date like five years ago? than what I write four years ago. And it's spooky. It's really spooky. It's the same crap over and over. And sometimes there's something I need help with today. And it's in that same entry in the book. So I'm glad that you find that comfort in your own notebooks, because that's what they do for me. Do you ever find too, this is something that helps me is I will have kind of like low points, right? Like 
mm-hmm. things where I'm tripping up, I'm not, you know, being the best version of myself or whatever, sure. I can look back now and be like, okay, these are the things that lead up to that. So like if I'm worn oh. out, stressed out, tired, right. I know this is going to happen. So then yes, when I find myself starting to head that way, I can kind of put some guardrails up in my life to prevent me from kind of falling off off the cliff again. I, I don't know if like, that may be like way too personal, Austin, but no. I don't know if that's something that like helps you too. Yeah, I, this is what life is. I always find that anyone who takes the time to write about their life is already taking a step beyond what most people do in their life. They're they're taking that step towards the examined life, right? Simply by paying attention to your own life and you start to notice your own patterns. You figure out who you are. Well, you really are your actions over and yes. over again. Yes. Right? And a lot of us don't know ourselves very well because we haven't been paying attention. So that's what writing is supposed to do. That's what a diary or a notebook is supposed to do. It's a way of paying attention to your own life. And when you pay attention to your own life, you know, you get that sense of it, but you also, you're able to really, I think it's, you just are able to love it more because I really think that attention is a form of love is a form of attention. Attention is love. And when you pay attention to something, that's a form of love. Do you write about your kids in your notebooks? You said you had a son. I do. Yeah. I love that. I draw little cartoons of of my (laughs) sons. How old are your kids? They have a son who's 13 and a daughter who's five. What about you? Oh, wow. Uh, I have um, an 11-year-old and an eight-year-old. And it's just so funny because these little cartoons from like five years ago, they're just like the same person. Yeah. They change a lot, but they also like remain this kind of (laughs) life force that they keep. There's so much themselves. And I love that because whenever I am struggling with one of them or something comes up, I go back and it's like, oh, yeah, they've been, (laughs) this is who they are. (laughs) My daughter, I actually, I did this a couple of weeks ago. I wrote down all like the weird phrases. Oh, good. The weird language, like, like she says, but it's, so like one of the things that she loves doing on the weekends, because I leave the house, you know, before like five 30 in the morning, every right. day to go to work. Right. And so on the weekends I'm home, but like, I still keep the same writing schedule on the weekend. So I still get up at four 30. Uh-huh. So she loves Good. getting up and coming to hang out with me. I write in the basement. So she comes and hangs out here and plays, but she calls it the early nighttime. Oh, I love that. The early nighttime. That's yeah. great. So like the night before she's like, dad, can I, can I get up tomorrow early nighttime? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll be there. She'll show up at like six o'clock in the morning and be ready to hang out early nighttime with me. Uh, Write it all down. We all have these things. I mean, they say these incredible, that's part of the thing I love about having kids, especially as someone who likes language. Language is so malleable for them. They play with it and, and they take things very literally, which I think makes them poetic. I think when people take things literally, it creates a kind of poetic weight to things. One that I've been playing with lately is um, one time I was talking to my son about like video games or something. And I was talking about what level I was on. And he said, oh, you're almost a beginner. And I thought <laughs> almost a beginner. I was like, that's a great, I was like, that's a book title. Almost yeah, yeah. a beginner. You know, I was like, perfect. You, you know, but they say these things all the time. And you, I really, I'm really glad that you write them down because they just, I forget everything. 
It just yeah. goes away if you don't get it down. And you're inspiring me to to write down something that I, right now, actually. Good, good. <laughs> I remember. I, speaking of like inspiring you, like uh, a couple of years ago, my son, he uh, he loves football. Like he loves playing. Uh-huh. So we were throwing, and this is something I journaled about, but like we were throwing the football in the backyard and like he missed a couple passes mm-hmm. and he got like so angry and just wanted to quit. And I was like, what's wrong, man? And he was like, dad, how can I be a star wide receiver when I keep dropping passes. And I was like, dude, quit worrying about the noun and focus on the verb, which was something that that I got. Like somebody quoted you on that, but I have used that so many times Mm -hmm. in parenting and just even talking to other people. So many people get worried about titles Yep, and like, well, I'm the dad, I'm your father. (laughs) Yeah, well, dude, dad stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. I I'm constantly. It helps me with everything. It's like to do the verb. What is the verb? What do they need right now? What is the action? Catching. Right? Yeah, yeah. I'm not a football player. I'm just catching. I'm throwing and catching. Right. Just get good at catching. Not a writer. I'm just writing. Yeah. You know? I like still don't think of myself as a writer, but I've been waking up, you know, it's stupid hours every day now yeah. for years yeah. writing. It's good. So, it's yeah. good. Don't think of yourself. I mean, I, I'm always like, you're not a writer. You're not a best-selling author. You're just a guy writing. And that's the way you get out over it. Almost a beginner. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I see, it's something I see in the army all the time too, is like people watch the commercials and they're like, oh man, like I want to be in the army. But like you want to be in the army until it's time to do army stuff, right? Until it's time to do the verb every what are the verbs day? of yeah. being a soldier. Yeah, right. It's true for every career. You know, I think about it like ever since then, it's just given me a framework. That's great. I mean, it's yeah. helped me, so I'm glad to hear it helped. You know, helped you. And and a lot of that is, um, I will say one thing for me that's been. I'm trying to think of what really brought me to that. Oh, I think of. I think it's very Eastern. It's very Buddhist to think of nouns as verbs, as processes. It's also yeah. very physics. Yeah. Physics will, if you read anything about like quantum physics or anything, that's totally a physics thing. There are no solid, there are no things in physics. It's all just processes. It's all verbs. There are no nouns. It's just like all verbs. It's all one kind of flow. That's kind of, it's like one of my pet things is how much like, read deeply about religion and you read deeply about physics and they're kind of saying the same thing. And I always love that, that science and religion, they're never as far apart as, as you think they are. Yeah. But no nouns, just verbs. (laughs) It helps. I love it. Cause it's like, again, I go back to the army and like, people are like, ah, well, I want to go do this, this and this. Okay. But like (laughs) to be this, this and this, you have to do, this yep. every single day mm-hmm. and i think like life is just too short to like live for nouns only absolutely the verb is so important you wrote about it too like if you get focused on you know the past and the future it's really hard to just focus on today like right now mm-hmm. you know yeah yeah i mean you know either one will mess you up cuz the past is about what's happened and the future is about what hasn't happened both of those are hangups. 
you're worried about all oh, the past is full of failure and the and the future is full of of potential failure <laughs> i have a um i have a three by five card that was suggested by raymond carver and he said every day without hope and without fear which is like you know if you, you're just there and you're doing the thing you're just doing the writing it's not about the results it's about like really being there and doing the thing it's all about being present for your life you know and i think that's one of the things you'll find with anybody who has a discipline what you're talking about is like you show up every day and you're alert and aware and paying attention to what it is that you're doing and that's you're living your life yes yeah. <laughs> it's not a life it's living <laughs> yeah you're, you're so. being where your feet are instead of yeah yeah worrying about a future that hasn't happened yet worrying about a past that you can't control anymore yeah um, it's already happened yeah yeah right where your feet are that's awesome man totally to kind of, I guess, to wind it down, because I, I have a feeling this could be like a marathon. This could be like a fish album. Um, <laughs> we could. We have this constraint. And the only constraint is I have to go get my kids soon. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if people are interested, this is like the mm -hmm. first time, you know, that they've heard you talk or, or uh, you know, heard your ideas. Where, where can they find you? You know, I'm old school. I just have a an old school author website. It's just austincleon.com. And when you go there, you'll find my links to my newsletter and where I am on social media. And you'll also find links to my books. I mean, I think I'm like the most helpful, nice version of myself in the books. So. Yeah. <laughs> so, so probably Steal Like an Artist is the one that people want to start with. But yeah, just austincleon.com. Just hit me up online and you'll get ported to everything. Austin, thank you so much for your time. Oh, this is my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it was a good good conversation. I know a lot of people are going to get a lot out of this. Cool. Well, I got a lot out of it. So I'm going to go read those Brian J. Jones uh, <laughs> books. And I hope your interview with him goes well. Me too. Me too. <laughs> thank you again for listening to another episode of From the Green Notebook Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us five stars wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps us gain visibility and the opportunity to help more people on their leadership journey. Also, make sure you check out our website at www.fromthegreennotebook.com. There, you can listen to past episodes, read leadership articles written by military leaders from around the world. You can sign up for our monthly reading list email where you can learn about new books that are coming out. And our Sunday reflection email that comes out every Sunday morning is really short. It's a two-minute read but I guarantee you it's going to start your week off on the right foot. Finally, make sure you follow us on Twitter at FTGN Notebook, and you can find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for From the Green Notebook. Again, thank you so much for coming on this journey with us. I am humbled by the opportunity to learn these lessons alongside you. So please join us next week for another episode of From the Green Notebook, where we're going to help you lead with the best version of yourself.